Well, hello there, and welcome to another edition of Servant's Heart Chapel. I hope uh, this particular episode is a special blessing to you. So let's get right to it. From the time I was a young child, I always enjoyed seeing behind the scenes, figuring out what makes things tick or how things come to be, what happens behind the scenes of something, uh, whether it's uh, taking apart my toys to see how they work, much to the chagrin of my mom, um, or uh, I loved as a kid watching documentaries on how movies are made and how special effects are done back when special effects were physical and not just uh, CGI. Um, I, I liked watching uh, shows uh, like Modern Marvels or how it's made and how stuff is produced. I always found that fascinating. Um, there's, there's often a lot more going on than what we see or what we know. I actually have a manuf- uh, I majored in manufacturing. Um, and so I took a lot of manufacturing classes and actually one of, uh, we used to be required a senior project, one of the last pinnacle projects before getting your bachelor's degree, you had to team up with some other students and come up with a full manufacturing plan to make something, make a certain item. Uh, and the plan was the business plan and the, the facility designed to include uh, parking lot layout, uh, cost estimates, all that stuff. Basically, what you had gleaned over the past four years you're supposed to employ in this full uh, project. And one team uh, made the mistake of deciding to uh, design and build um, or to, to use as their, their object of manufacture, to manufacture is the, the electric pencil sharpener. They thought this will be easy, very simple. But once they took it apart, they realized it was a lot more com- a lot more complicated than they thought. Just a vast amount, way more moving parts and gears. And what does this gadget do? What does that gadget do? We got to figure that out. And what's the cost of this and that? A very, um, I love that. I love that. Um, you know, like the human body, the, the complexity of the human eye is just it, like the more we study about the human body, the more complex it gets, the, the harder it is to truly understand. Um, and, and what I love about this passage, this is a very significant passage, by the way. Um, I, in this passage, we're actually going to talk about the unforgivable sin, the one sin that you can't be forgiven. Um, and I've never preached on that before. Uh, it's just never come up. and But it's a profound reality that's important for people to understand and know about. But it, that's not just the only thing in here. There's so much more in here. I feel like Jesus gets a, gives us a little peek behind the curtain of the spiritual world. This curtain that separates the physical from the spiritual. There's so We know there's so much more behind the scenes. You know, C.S. Lewis, I, I, we're going to actually study his book, The Screwtape Letters, later on. But that kind of gives us 
uh, his, his his thoughts. It's a, his interpretation of what happens behind the scene. And then the author Frankie Peretti, uh, years ago, I wrote the best-selling book, uh, "This Present Darkness," and that and that was his interpretation of what happens behind the scene. Um, and here Jesus gives us an actual glimpse into the spiritual world, the spiritual battle that takes place in our lives. It's easy to be dismissive of those things because we don't see them. We don't hear them. We just react and act with people and, and, and our, own, our own motivations, right? Our own, uh, the lust of the flesh uh, or the pride of life or, you know, the, the, our enemies, the flesh, the world and, and the devil. You know, we, we, we see maybe other people working against us, making things harder on us to do what's right, do what we know is right. Uh, but there's much more to it. And we're going to see that in this uh, passage. Let's begin with verse 22. As we see this, the, uh, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man could both speak and see. Now, we don't want to just gloss over that. There's going to be, I think, seven significant truths at least. Seven significant truths that I want to point out in this passage today. Number one is we see this man was in fact demon-possessed. That's a real thing. And it still happens today. And we, that leads us to the second truth that it... Uh, he was blind and unable to speak. It affected his life. Demonic influence can affect our lives on the outside, as we know that it brings. We know by what Christ did, uh, and, and what we know, you know, see now is that it can bring sickness, and we know that it can bring seizures upon people. Uh, the first time I saw that when I worked in inner city mission. Uh, in Cincinnati, Cincinnati is parts of a very evil place. Um, you can just kind of feel it. It feels dark and 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 just kind of oppressive. And and this man had come into our church, and and he was, I uh, and he and, and and there was an altar call, and he went to the altar to to give his heart to the Lord. And as he's praying, he suddenly begins shaking very violently. And I was standing behind him, and I was praying with him, and I immediately said, in the name of Jesus, depart from him. And the man immediately stopped shaking. And that's actually the only time I've come across him like that. And he was able to pray through, and, 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 he, and, he, and he was gloriously saved, and tears running down, he was so grateful, and Those are those are the, the, the seizures and the sicknesses and that those are the overt and obvious. But there's other uh, other signs of demonic influence. Uh, people who are it, it changes their attitude, their persona. They're they're angry all the time. They're brooding. They're bitter. They they enjoy hurting. I just one client. Um, he was 
he was an evil man. And he, he was being med-boarded out of the military, and he was unhappy about that. And he looked at me and he said, you haven't done anything for me. And I was a little shocked because I've been doing a lot for him. And he saw the shock on my face and he couldn't help himself. But there was a little twinkle in his eye and a little smile began to appear. He was enjoying the fact that what he said bothered me. He was getting... You know, he's getting glee out of that. That's evil. That's a, a, a sign of a demonic influence uh, to, to affect your attitude like that, you, you, to get enjoyment out of hurting others. Um, so we see that. But Jesus healed him. So we see the other truth number three is that Jesus has power over demons. Christ has power over that. I come across a lot of people who profess Christianity uh, and, and, and a few times over the past few years. Not super rare, but not all the time. Uh, I get phone calls to, hey, we come pray in our house for us. We bless our house. We, we just feel like there's this oppression or something wrong here. We're, we're scared. Um, and I do it, but as a Christ follower, you are completely under the protection of Christ. There's nothing the devil can do to you that God, unless God gives him permission to do it. And so we have nothing to fear, but a lot of Christians are always afraid. We have nothing to fear about anything demonic at all. I was when I was in high school. I was uh, definitely not a Christian, but I definitely believed in God and uh, and believed in Jesus. I just wasn't following Him. I wanted to live life my own way, but I believed Him. I believed He was the Son of God, and in our high school, we had a lot of uh, demonic stuff going on. A lot of practicing witches and people who drank blood and a lot of really evil stuff going on. And um, I had people that were involved in those circles try to intimidate me, but I wasn't going to be intimidated. Because I knew... They weren't serving the true God. And so they, they gave me a nickname and began to call me a preacher. And I would I would argue with them and, and make them look foolish and um but that became a nickname because I knew that Christ Christ has power over Satan and his minions. And I'm protected through him. So he healed the man. So you both uh, speak and see. And, and all the crowds were astounded and said, perhaps this is the son of David. Now, what do they mean by that? They, they're talking, 
this could be the Messiah, this could be the Christ, the one we've been waiting for that will save us. And they were right. Our truth number four, that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the Son of God who's come to save us. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul is their, another rude word for Satan, their name for Satan. This is the fifth truth in this passage. Uh, these evil men were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to demons, to, to the devil. That's an important thing to remember what they were doing at this moment. We're going to come back to that. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against himself is headed for destruction. And so no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, who is it your sons drive them out by? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Notice here the sixth truth that Jesus uses logic to respond to these guys. These guys are accusing him of, uh, of, of healing this man by the power of Satan. So he uses logic first to ease the argument that a kingdom that a kingdom can't attack itself. Why would a kingdom do that? And it's not going to survive if it does so. So why would the devil hurt himself? Him healing that man is hurting the devil. It's taking away something that man used to belong to the devil. And, and now Jesus has rescued him. Verse two, or not, not verse two. The second point, the logic point that Jesus makes is, why would Jesus... It refers to the, the other Israelites that were uh, exercising demons in the name of God. And they were doing it. Jesus made the point, why would the source of my power be different than your fellow Israelites? And the third logic point Jesus made was talks about comparing what he did to going and taking something from a strong man's house. He had this really tough guy living in a house, and he has something that, that is in his possession and, and, and it belongs to Jesus. So Jesus comes and takes it. The only way you can do that is if you have power over the strong man in the house. Because you're not going to get permission. The strong man isn't just going to want to give it up. That's the point that Jesus was making. 
He didn't give the devil's permission to heal this man. He had power over the devil to heal this man. The thing about logic, logic only works with those seeking truth. You might have had a few of those Pharisees go, hmm, you know what? Maybe Nicodemus, others. And he's got a point. But those with an evil intent, an evil heart, they would not see that at all. They didn't care. In verse 30, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. You know there's no neutral with Jesus? You can't just say, oh, he's a nice guy, but I'm just going to do my own thing. You're either with Christ or you're against him. You're either helping him accomplish what, what he's trying to accomplish, or you're actually fighting against him and doing the opposite of what he's trying to accomplish. Verse 31, because of this I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the one to come. So here we talk about the unforgivable sin. You know, there's two groups this really affects. Um, those who are concerned about it, that care about it, and those who don't care about it. The ones who care about it, some of them, a small percentage of them, may tend to worry a lot about committing it. And, and they're anxious. And I, I've known people who, who you know, it, it messes with their head. It, it torments them. I, I remember years ago, um, at God's Bible School, one of the professors talking about, I think it was Dr. Powell actually, talking about a young lady that he was trying to help. She was going to the altar, you know, at some revival meeting, I think. Every night she was going to the altar and she was trying to pray through, trying to ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness, but she wasn't feeling the way she expected she ought to feel. And, and she was certain she had committed the unforgivable sin. And she had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and, and, and she didn't want, uh, and, and she had no hope at that point. And she, no, go on. She went away. Heartbroken. Certain that she had committed the unforgivable sin. Then you have those who are, are not concerned at all. They care less. Um, or they, they play games with God. They, they say, oh yeah, I, um, I want to be a good Christian. I, I, I believe in Jesus. But their, their life doesn't match their words. They talk a big talk. But their life never, they still have problems with sin in their, there's wickedness in their hearts. They, they lust, they lie, they cheat, they steal. They, they, 
they do all these things, all these evil things. They they speak badly to some uh, to other people that that they should love. They're selfish. They say, "Oh, I, I can pick and choose what I want to believe in God's word. If I don't agree with something, I don't have to follow it." I'm just going to be a Christian in my terms. So those are two groups. Before I deal with those in more depth, I feel like it's important that we define what we mean by the unforgivable sin. We see that it's exemplified in this passage by those very Pharisees. And I like how uh, I've been reading this book. I'm not finished with it. It's a big book. It's like a 500-page book uh, called Against God and Nature, uh, The Doctrine of Sin. And, um, of course, it has a section on the unforgivable sin. Um, and it had this to say about that sin, what, what it is. It's persistent, impenitent unbelief. Persistent, impenitent unbelief. It's a, an absolute and radical refusal to be converted. I think it's exemplified very sadly by a man by the name of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr played a big role in our country's early history. Um, but he was, he was, at the time he was an adult, a grown man, um, as far as I can see, he was a devout atheist. Uh, but what many and, and and many don't know, and by the way, his, his behavior showed that he he got into a duel, killed a man, and 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 I was arrested later on for trying to basically starve his own country in Texas, and uh, he was definitely a troublemaker. Um, but when he was going to, I believe, Princeton University, back when Princeton was very much a, a Christian college, um, he felt God tug on his heart. There was, he was heavily burdened. He had no, he knew he, he was he was a sinner. He had sinned against God and, 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 and he was really battling it and he was encouraged by his peers and his professors to seek God and and uh, and, and I, one professor even gave him a Bible. I'm not sure why he didn't already have one, but he gave him a Bible and told him to, to read it and, and go to his room and and and, and figure things out. And he, and, and he battled over this. And, and and finally it came to a point he he was he was in his room alone, and finally he told God, you leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. And he said, at that point, no more conviction. Later in life, he told somebody, somebody tried to encourage him uh, uh, in Christ, and he told them that ever since that, that moment, 
He's ne- he had never had any interest in becoming a Christian at all. Now there's there's conflicting stories about his deathbed. Um, several say that he he did not surrender to God at all, but it was a very ugly thing to watch. The woman that attended to him said she never wanted to attend to a dying infidel again. One man gave a story that he did, in fact, give his heart to the Lord at the end. I hope it's true. But here, this is the refusal to be converted. You leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, disrespect of the Holy Spirit, and it, it, it's this, it's this, what we talked about, this persistent, impenitent unbelief, this rejection of the Holy Spirit. And it's unforgivable because you have to accept the work of the Holy Spirit in order to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings conviction upon their heart and draws you to Christ. And if you reject the Holy Spirit, you can't come to Christ. For those who are the, the, in the concern category, as I mentioned before, the fact that you're concerned, the fact that you're maybe even worried, maybe this is something that's been a battle to you, and you're, you're always worried that you're going to blast in the Holy Spirit and be unforgiven. The fact that you're worried about that is a sign that you have not committed that sin. The reason it's unforgivable is because you refuse to allow yourself in a position where you can be forgiven. You refuse to care about God or Jesus or anything like, anything like that. So have hope. Now for the unconcerned, I have a warning. In our life, in everyone's life, there's a red line. This 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 line, this mark. Where God is wooing you, God's trying to push you in the right direction. God wants to forgive you and, and make you whole and be in a right relationship with you. But all too many resist and cross that red line. And either they cross that red line by God finally agreeing to their wish and being left alone. Like Aaron Burr. Or they cross that red line when they step into eternity. I knew a woman by the name of Phyllis years ago. She was a preacher's kid. She rejected God. 
in her uh, uh, as a young woman she completely rejected god and and fell into deep 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 sin married a, a wicked man and both of them fell into gross sin and there were many times and i i i grew up she was a friend of my mom's and so i kind of grew up around her and so as a child and then as an adolescent and then as as a, a teenager i i i watched her time and again uh almost die either health or an accident or something so she comes close comes to the precipice of death and i remember uh not long after i had finally given my heart to the lord so i would have been 17 or 18 and and i and she had just been hit by a car and she was okay she was banged up a little bit but she was okay and i said phyllis god is trying to get your attention And she said, I know. I said, give him your heart. And I tried to encourage her. And she didn't. She wouldn't. And finally the day came where I think her had health problems. She died. Very young age. She was probably she was around my mom's age, so she would have been late forties, early fifties. I doubt even fifty and forties. So probably about the age I am now. Red line. Everybody crosses it all the time. All too too often they they, you know, God deals with their heart and, and, and they're under conviction. People come to our church and they're under conviction and, and, they, and they leave, they run away. And they cross that line out of God's protection into this cold world. It's not a game. If you have a chance, if God deals with your hearts and you have a chance to surrender to Him, then do so. Don't hesitate at all. Jesus continued, verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. More logic here. You say you say you're saying that I'm bad, but I'm doing good things. That's not possible. You reap what you sow, and a tree produces its own kind of fruit. Then he calls them verse thirty four, brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good man produces good things from a storeroom of good. An evil man produces evil things from a storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. This leads us to our last major truth. 
something to be cautious about. Be be careful about what you say. Every careless word you speak, you're going to be held accountable. We're held accountable by our words. Did you know that? Verse 34, verse 37, I mean, for by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I want my words to say, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I plead his blood. A lot of deep truths going on here. I hope you got something out of it today. Let's bow our heads. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at servantsheartchapel at gmail.com. Also, we have a website, servantsheartchapel.org. We also have a Facebook page. So you're welcome to check us out. Love to hear from you, prayer requests, anything you may need. We are here for you. Have a wonderful and blessed day.